As you turn to Revelation chapter 17, just a couple of things. I didn't discover uh, myself uh, confessions and catechisms uh, till late in life. Really, late in the ministry. I mean, I was a pastor, and I didn't, uh, I didn't even know what a confession was. And um, I was not at all catechized. And, um, and then when I finally did, I have to tell you, it was very transforming for me when I all of a sudden realized that God, through the history of the church, has given some pretty significant expressions of what the Bible actually teaches. All that to say, I would like to pastor a church of well-catechized people, and so we are... Uh, during the Sunday school hour, going through the confessions and catechism that you might understand, I think, more fully and properly what the Bible actually teaches. And so I really want to encourage you, just remember, for 20 minutes, we'll go into the confessions and catechisms, and then after that, a time of question and answer, which I'm assuming after today's sermon, there will be plenty of that, because we're covering an entire chapter here in the Revelation. It made me think, as I was sitting back there when I was a young youngster, I was probably you know, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old, and I used to go to the Redondo Pier to fish, and I was fishing, and I put an entire squid on my line as bait, like a whole squid, and I remember some old salty dog came up to me, and he's like, what you got going there, boy? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm fishing. He goes, you got enough bait on there to choke a horse. <laughs> and I'm like, and I looked at it, and I threw it out there anyway, and I caught one of the biggest, most beautiful corbina, brought it home, and it was delicious. All that to say, I'm intending to choke all of you this morning. <laughs> we will look at this entire chapter, and um, there's a lot to it. And then afterward, hopefully, you know, do my best, and hopefully you'll, you'll work hard yourselves at kind of understanding the gist of this chapter. We're not going to get into the minute details, we're not going to go into the weeds of it, but the understanding of this whole chapter and what it meant to the original readers, what it means to us. What is this telling us about God? What is this telling about what is the call that God has in our lives as we read words like this? So we're looking at Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the word of God. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead... A name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit to go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. 
there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received a kingdom as yet, but they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are, the, these are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast... These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Thus far the reading of the word of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, there is so much in this chapter, and even short bits of it seem so difficult and confusing, and yet it is your word. It is the word of God. And we do pray this morning that as we examine it, we would understand what it tells us of you, what it tells us of the conflict between the things of the world and the things of heaven, and what call there is in our lives in terms of how we should respond to the things that we have read So we do pray, Father, that you would grant us wisdom, grant us understanding. Help us, Father, be men and women of conviction and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's it's not uncommon, I think, for people to feel boxed in in their lives, to just kind of feel the pressure of the the weight of the moment, whether it's uh, your work environment or certain difficult family members, or health concerns, uh, economic concerns. Life can sometimes feel smothering. You, know? you just feel like, wow, well, I, I can't navigate these, these waters. That's one reason, by the way, I think the, that God has so graciously given us the Lord's Day. Jesus said it was made for us. It's a, it's a time when we come here and, I, and, and breathe You know, we breathe in that which is eternal. We meditate upon our eternal Sabbath rest. I hope that's your experience at church, that your experience at church is you feel like you've come to a fountain and that that you've been nourished and nurtured, specifically as the church calls us all to fix our eyes upon Jesus who promises rest. There is a, uh, a vastness to this rest because it includes every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, so we come here and God's going, you need to open your eyes to that which is eternal. And if you belong to Christ, that which belongs to you, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Of course, this practice, I don't think, is restricted to the Lord's Day. I think it's emphasized on the Lord's Day. 
I know for me, if I feel overwhelmed by, you know, the moments in life, um, I find myself going down to the ocean, putting my feet in the sand. I can just feel like the endorphins, you know, and looking at the horizon. I, um, I have to say, just in terms of God's creation, other than the heavens, the horizon is the most vast thing that I can see. Like you go down there, and I get, you might have a different place. You know, you, for you, it might be the mountains or snow or the desert, I guess, possibly. I don't know, understand that, but some people like the desert. But I go down there, and I look, and I, I've lived here my whole life, and so when I look out at the horizon, there's kind of a, a consistency to it. There's an immutability to it, because when you're on the beach looking out, it looks the same now as it looked when I was five. And so I, I feel like there's something telling me you have to get everything in perspective here. And, and so we have these things in our lives where we kind of go, I need to get the big picture. I, I'm overwhelmed by all this stuff. I need the big picture. And the revelation is a sort of big picture. It's this big picture book at the end of the Bible. Now remember, it was written to seven churches and probably other churches in that, in that route. And they were they were in the midst of political and religious turmoil. They were in the midst of a a hornet's nest. Whatever our difficulties are, there's no comparison to the difficulties that they were experiencing. It was far hotter than most of us in the West have ever experienced. But our Lord was quite aware of what they were going through. When we went through the seven letters, the seven churches, we see this refrain, for I know this about you. I know this about you. And the Lord knew the pull. He knew the temptation. He knew that there was this temptation that not only would they stumble and fall, but that the possibility that they would depart from the faith altogether and no longer be churches at all. So he's addressing that in the midst of their difficulty. Let us be reminded that the revelation was not written, as is so popular today, that we might somehow muse on the fascinations of the end of the world. You know, like the way, you know, these movies that are made where you're like, wow, the end of the world is going to be so crazy then. But it's written that those who actually initially received the letter might persevere. Those who received the letter, and this is another refrain, right, that you might overcome in the midst of this difficulty. And I would argue that to any extent that any generation would find themselves in the midst of similar difficulties, we are called to the same, to overcome, to persevere. I think it's for this reason that John offered this three-point outline. I mean, as difficult as Revelation is, there is an outline in the Revelation, right? The, the things which you've seen, the things that are, and the things which will take place after these things. And just for a quick review, because I, I, you know, I, I, I corner some of you in the hallway and go, so what do you think Revelation is all about here in week 46? And you get all scared, <laughs> rightfully so. So I like to review once in a while, you know, in order for us to kind of fly over it at 35,000 feet and get the big picture But chapter 1, before we get into all the things, chapter 1 primarily sees a vision of the glorified Christ. 
So before John gets into the problems in the church, before John gets into you know, these, these, these radical things that are going to take place, the vision is the vision of Christ. And as I've mentioned before, of all the great monsters that John saw in the Revelation, none of them made him fall down as dead. It was only the vision of the glorified Christ that caused him to fall down as dead. And so however glorious and powerful and and kind of ominous the things of the world are, John is kind of going, look, there is one that is more powerful and more glorious than whatever this world has to offer. So before we get into all the issues, know the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, in his glory. And then in chapters 2 and 3, which is part 2 of the outline, the Lord instructs on the specific strengths and weaknesses of those particular churches. God has a way, even to this day, of revealing to you and to me our wicked ways. I mean, we, we do, um, every Lord's Day, right, we have a time of confession of sin, where, you know, in part, and oftentimes you'll see the prayer, Lord, and it's a quote from Psalm 139, reveal to me those wicked ways, those hurtful ways. Not that I might be overwhelmed by them, not that I might engage in some kind of unhealthy form of self-loathing, but that I might confess those ways, that I might recognize that those evil ways are just assumed by the blood of Christ and lead me, Lord, in the everlasting way. And so that is the call in terms of the seven letters to the seven churches, in terms of their specific behaviors, and it should be ours as well. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and lead me now in the paths of righteousness that I might walk for your glory. Then in chapters 4 through 18, so this outline isn't even, right? The first point of the outline is one chapter. The point two is two chapters. But then the third point of the outline is chapters 4 through 18. God gives the very big picture of his deposing of those who take rank against the Lord's anointed and those who belong to him, right? Because Jesus said when you did it, to the least of me, you've done it, or to the least of them, you've done it to me. So what we're reading here is God's dealing with those who are hostile to his people, hostile to his, his church. And this is all presented by the way of seals and trumpets and bowls of wrath. Now, that's kind of the, the predominant theme in those chapters. Briefly put, the seven seals, as we went through, are kind of previews of those seven trumpets. It's almost like um, you're reading the, the introduction to the book, and then the trumpets are the opening of the book, which is the judgment, I would argue, of Jerusalem, who had taken to killing the prophets. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 23 that on this generation will be the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. It's going to fall upon these people. So I would argue that what we're having here is the religious oppressors of the church, which primarily at this point were the Pharisees, are being dealt with in those, in those trumpets. The seven bowls, I would argue, transfers from, the, from Jerusalem to the Roman Empire because it was Jerusalem and the Roman Empire that came together against the church, right? We read it in the old, uh, you know, creeds, Right? You, you notice the creeds almost always mention Pilate. Right? Who is Pilate? He's a Roman governor. 
right? And so you see Pilate and the people of Israel and this kind of negotiation going on. I shall I crucify your king. We have no king but Caesar. This is going on. And so now you've got these two entities, a corrupt, the corrupt religion of the Pharisees and the corrupt government of Rome. And this chapter is all about how God is going to depose them because they're taking rank against the Lord's anointed. Well, chapter 17 can be viewed as kind of a, a supplement because the, 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 the bowls of wrath were all in chapter 16. Now we've, now we've got kind of a, a supplement of that final bowl of wrath. And this kind of culminates, if you, if you followed me in the reading, of this battle against the Lamb of God. I mean, all of a sudden inserted in there is they're going to do battle against the Lamb of God. Well, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to try to unpack this as rapidly and clearly as I can. Um, I, do, I do want this to be ministerial to you, but you're going to have to engage. Right? You, I, um, we're doing these hot topic sermons. We just kind of restarted those. Um, Mortimer Adler, you guys ever heard of Mortimer Adler? He was uh, one of the editors in the Encyclopedia Britannica, but he also wrote a book entitled How to Read a Book. Which is funny, right? You're like going, I got to read the book in order to, I got to, I can't, I can't even get started. But you get the idea. And I, one of the, uh, one of the uh, ideas for a sermon, and that's not just a sermon, but church service is how to do church. Like what's going on when you come here? Like what are your expectations? Because um, we're all participating together. This this is not a show, right? If it is a show, we're all part of the act together, and God is the audience watching us. And so that requires effort on the part of everybody in the room. And I, as I look at a big, long chapter like this, I realize it's going to require effort on your part. So help each other. If somebody starts to do one of these, you give them one of those. Okay, getting into the chapter, and again, I'm just going to do a broad sweeping uh, survey of this chapter. We have two main characters in this chapter other than the lamb himself, and that is the harlot and the beast. And I've mentioned I take this harlot to be the city of Rome, although some people take it to be Jerusalem, and I don't have a big problem with that. I just, I just kind of find myself on the other end of that, and you can, during the question and answer time, ask, ask me why. And the beast, I think, is even more clearly the Roman Empire. But what is undeniable, regardless of your position in terms of who these characters actually are, is the evil nature and influence of the great harlot. This great harlot has amazing influence upon the world in which she sits. She currently, the Bible says here, she currently sits on many waters. Well, later on, it'll explain that the waters are nations and tongues and what have you. But this idea of many waters is a it's a sign of affluence, you know. And we like uh, like uh, Jason was praying, right? That we just have water coming out of the faucet, no big deal. But that, that's kind of a modern phenomenon. Water's a big deal, and if you're on many waters, it's this idea that you're flush, right? If you've been to Rome, you've seen the canals, that, you know, and what they created in order to bring water into the city. Palm Springs would still be a desert without water. You know, water is what makes things happen. So she's on many waters. This idea that she happens to be very powerful, very flush. But this chapter details her judgment. 
her harlotry. And some, you know, and by the way, this idea of harlotry, like, um, is often talking about Israel because they were in a covenantal relationship with God, and they departed from that. And they, they're called adulterous or harlotry, but that is also refers to other nations that are not Israel. So you don't have to be Israel to be a harlot. It can speak of anybody who turns their back on the things of God, turns their back on that which is good and right and true. But her harlotry and influence, her, uh, her ungodliness was universally intoxicating. The power of the ungodliness. And even though this intoxication is likely a metaphor, it can be very disconcerting how evil can violently possess someone's disposition. I mean, I, I do think it's kind of metaphorical, right? You're intoxicated with this. But, but there is a kind of a mob mentality that takes over, and you, you watch this take, take place sometimes, and you're thinking, how can people be doing this? How, how can you be so comfortable with such evil emanating from your, your very members? And yet there is, I think, a darkness in that intoxication. Now, a fitting place for such a dark vision, John is carried away into the wilderness where he sees the woman sitting on a scarlet beast. We went into detail in this in chapter 13. I think it's, I think it's quite clear that this beast is the Roman empire and all its blasphemy. It's all of its self-deification. How the, you know, the Caesars wanted to be called Lord. Caesar is Lord. And so you've got this ungodly, blasphemous empire that the woman is, is sitting on. And again, some understand this to be the collaboration of Rome and Jerusalem, and I think there's merit to that position. I, I finally, I kind of arrived at the conclusion that it was Rome, the city of Rome, and the Roman Empire. But like I've said before, and you give me a nice steak dinner, I could change my view on that. <clears throat> either way, either, either condition, and by the way, what I, what I don't want to say is it doesn't matter. The fact that I can't figure something out doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, right? It, it does matter, but I, I'm at the end of myself in terms of I'm like, I'm leaning toward this, but I could be convinced otherwise. But either way, we see here a beautifully ugly picture, right? She has purple and scarlet, which speaks of royalty. But her hot, she's got gold. And precious stones and pearls, right? Which speaks of wealth. Just the opposite of what we read in Isaiah 53, right? About Jesus. There was nothing outwardly about him. No comeliness about him. There was nothing about his physical features where people said, I want to follow him because of the way he's dressed. Because of his jewelry. It's just the opposite. She is just the opposite. She's, she, she's just full of bling, right? And glitter and power and wealth. But her ostentatious cup is filled with what? Full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now you're going, wow, you, this gets very ugly. As a matter of fact, if I were to get into the weeds, this might be, and I wouldn't do this, but it might be the time where you dismiss the kids in terms of what he's actually saying in this particular phrase. But everything about this woman Everything about this city screams to distract us from godliness. It wants our attention. 
It's little wonder that the same author who wrote the Revelation also wrote these little short epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and in 1 John 2, 16 and 17, he writes this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Boy, that just describes her, does it not? Is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Those chosen, those called, those faithful, they abide forever, over and against the glitter of the world. We see on this woman a name, and it's on her forehead. And we've learned earlier that names on the forehead or on the hand, they're not tattoos. They're not subcutaneous computer chips. If we're reading the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, what's on your forehead, what's on your hand, is an indication of who owns you, how you think, and how you behave. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, this idea that what's going on here is going to affect what's going on here and the way you speak. Clearly, this woman is owned by the enemy. Rome and its Caesars had reached the acme of evil and were the source of the abominations of the earth. And that word earth there, just so you know, almost every time the word earth or world is used in the Revelation, it could also be translated the land. The drunkenness, by the way, was not only that of fornication, but she was drunk with the blood of the saints and of the martyrs of Jesus. So it wasn't just, I want to do my own thing. It was, I will kill whoever somehow opposes me doing my own thing. Friends, we have to understand this, and it's hard for many of us to understand because we were raised in kind of a, you know, what they call a Judeo-Christian culture. But the worldly powers, whether they're social, political, educational, economic, you name it, will not play fair. I think we're delusional to think that they will. The devil is a liar and he's the father of lies. With the open exchange of ideas, especially Christian ideas I have in mind, proves dismantling to ungodly power structures, those power structures will seek to remove all obstacles. They don't want to have an open conversation. I mean, the Bible is not afraid, by the way, of an open conversation, right? Let the dreamer tell his dream. Is not my word like a rock, like a hammer that breaks the rock. I mean, there's no fear of let's go, all right, let's just put it all out there. And the enemy knows this, so they don't want to put it all out there. You must be silenced. If I can't pervert your message, I'm going to keep you from delivering your message. And though... The initial application of these words, I think, applied to the first century, these churches that were feeling the full weight of this. Let's not just view this as a history lesson. Friends, the battle rages. It continues to this day. It is, it is the pursuit of the eschaton. It is the pursuit of history. We have spoken a lot, I think, in this series of China. You know, and our church has a, a very kind of lively, active ministry with uh, the Chinese church. Let me tell you something. I'm going to put it this way and follow me. I'm not, I'm going to say this kind of ironically or sarcastically. 
the biggest mistake the communist government of China ever made in an effort to appear magnanimous to the West was to allow Bibles and churches to exist in their country. They wanted to look good to the West. So they're like, yeah, we have churches. Now, they thought they could manage those churches. They thought they could control those churches. It was the communist-controlled three-self church. It's the government-run church. They have buildings, and they have Bibles. In these churches, just so you understand what's going on right now, communist party members decide how many people can be baptized in a given year. They decide who gets to preach. They get to decide what the focus of preaching is. And I just gave you, I'm going to give you here a few examples of kind of how they're governing this and what the boundaries are. Preaching on the resurrection of Christ, forbidden. So you walk into a church, they open their Bibles, but you can't preach on the resurrection. Preaching on the second coming of Christ, forbidden. Preaching against religions that deny the deity of Christ, forbidden. Preaching that atheist, communist heroes went to hell is forbidden. Denying that good communists go to heaven is forbidden. And this one should be obvious to us all because of the policies in China. Preaching against abortion, forbidden. So you understand who's kind of calling the shots. And if I could put it this way, you know, they, uh, the, you know the, the atheistic, communistic regimes, they don't mind if Christians get together and pray, thanking some deity for their food. They don't mind so much Jesus as prophet. And they don't mind so much Jesus as priest. What they do not want is Jesus as king. Because if he is king then he is king of kings, and all must bow to him. And that is not acceptable. So what happened in these three self-churches? By the word of God and by the Holy Spirit, and we've had interaction, I've been there, they've been here. They wouldn't capitulate. They started reading the word of God, the Holy Spirit came into them. I don't, I'm not a charismatic but that's the way it happens, right? They read the word of God, the Holy Spirit goes true, and they would not capitulate, and there was no stopping them, even though the effort is being made. So this resulted in the underground church, the very powerful and growing underground church where the members are routinely beaten and fined, arrested, tortured, sent to labor camps, killed, or simply disappear. All that to say that the revelation, at least currently, might have a tighter application to our Chinese brothers and sisters than to us in the West. But make no mistake about it, the bow in the West is being pulled back. Just recently, a politician of a very high office in the land quoted the words of Jesus you shall love your neighbor as yourself in his defense of abortion. I mean, that was sent to me, and I thought, oh, this is just one of those right-wing Tucker Carlson fake memes or something, you know. And so I always have to do some research to make sure 
that this is true. I, not, not that I don't trust people, but I pretty much don't trust people. But in fact, that is what has happened. And it shouldn't be surprising to any of you to recognize that this is a satanic methodology. The twisting and the perversion of the scriptures were the means by which the devil sought to tempt Jesus. And I do pray, and we're going to see these words in a second, you know, let him who has wisdom. I pray all of you have the wisdom to see that in our current environment. Well, all of this caused John to marvel, and this marvel that he had, this marveling, you know, probably was also confusing. So the angel volunteers to clear things up and reveal the mystery, and I have to say, the angel's like, let me explain this to you. And then when I was reading the explanation, I have to say, it didn't really help a lot. I mean, his explanation was equally kind of cryptic. He speaks of the beast, I think, which is a bit of a review, because the language is odd and maybe not as clear as we'd like. And you've probably caught it while we're reading it, right? The beast that was and is not and yet is. What is that? It's not real clear language. But I think that beckons us back to this idea, remember, of the mortal wound of the beast, and he appeared to be dead, and he came back to life. And we talked about that at the time. And that is this idea that you have the Caesars, and when one dies, right, that is not the end of the empire. One dies, and another takes his place. The death of a Caesar was not the death of the empire, and I think that's what he's talking about here. And in all of this, by the way, is taking place, we read that the world is quite impressed with what's going on. The whole world marvels. He says, those people marveling are those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So the whole world is impressed, but he describes them as those whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So I feel like what John's doing here is revealing his Calvinism. And not as a mere polemic, but what I think John's trying to do is go, look, you need to step way back. And you need to recognize that the fact that you embrace the Lamb is not something that started with your intellect, your humility, your ability to make the right decision. You are part of something eternal. God is doing something eternal. And your inclusion in, in it is, goes way beyond your ability to think clearly. It goes into God's eternal decrees. And if you come to the Westminster class, you'll learn about what that means. In this explanation, John once again uses the phrase, we've heard this before, here is the mind which has wisdom. Remember the calculating of the number of the beast? Did we see it again here? This is, I think, another reason I believe John is writing about current events over and against writing about things that would happen thousands of years in the future, which he will when we get to chapter 20 for sure. He assumes this, that there are readers, now think about this, be, you know, be a Berean, be somebody who's critical, not in a bad way, of, of what you hear, what you read. He assumes that there are readers who are receiving this letter who will be able to figure out who the characters of this drama actually are. Right? So he's kind of going, look at you who have wisdom, I'm going to give you some clues here as to who this is. 
And like I said before, I don't think anybody went home, prayed about it, read it, went to bed, and in the middle of the night woke up and said, it must be Henry Kissinger. <laughs> I, think they had a, I think they had a pretty good idea of who these characters are. And then John gives one of the most clear and compelling explanations of who the beast is and when these things actually take place. Now, look it. I realize that the Revelation is a difficult book. I'm I'm not, you know, daft. I mean, every passage seems like a helium-inflated balloon, right? And you're holding the ribbons, and you don't know how they're attached, and and they're one's flying away, and you're trying to pull it in, and you're trying to keep it all together. I get that. And there are a lot of things where you're going, wow, these balloons are all over the place as I read the Revelation, and it's not helping as I read the commentators, because they're like balloons themselves, right? They're all over the place. But there are certain things as we read the Revelation that I think should be clear to anyone. And if you want to know, well, Pastor Paul, what are the things that led you to the conclusions? We're about to read a couple of passages that led me to some of the conclusions that I currently have, because I think they're a little bit more explicit. They're not as vague. It is universally recognized, and it has been for thousands of years, that Rome is a city on seven hills. Right? I mean, you guys know the Windy City? What's the Windy City? What's the City of Angels? That doesn't really work anymore at all, does it? (laughs) A Big Apple. What's the Big Apple? Right. So, historically, even more so than those, which are fairly recent developments, the city on seven hills is Rome. And so when he talks about this idea of seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, I think it's a pretty compelling argument that he's talking about Rome. This is not a floating balloon. I feel like this is a post kind of pounded into the ground to help us kind of be a little bit more solidified in terms of our understanding. Add to this the reference to the seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue for a short time. Now, you might go, what is all that? Why is that so compelling? I think that's a very strong argument for the early dating of the Revelation. I think the Revelation was written in the 60s, not in the 90s. And I think you'll see in a second why I think that is. But I think it takes some work to avoid concluding that the readers who got this, who had even a little bit of wisdom, would know that John is referring to somebody that was a contemporary to them. So you've got five five have died, one is, another one will be around for a short time. So let's just put the Caesars up on the board. Now you can, you know, do your own investigation of this. Number one, Julius. Number two, Augustus. Number three, Tiberius. Number four, Caligula. Number five, Claudius, right? All dead. Number six. You know, five were. One is. Who's the sixth Caesar? Nero. Who died, by the way, in 68 which means that if he is, that this had to be written in 68 or earlier. And then finally, and I'm not going to go into the details here, but then finally you have Galba 
I mean, if you, if you remember the reading, it's like he's around for a short time. How long did Gobble last? Seven months and he was gone. So to me, it's very compelling that if I were a reader of the Revelation, and I'm going, okay, there were five Caesars. Okay, they're all dead. The sixth is. Well, who is? Who's the sixth Caesar? It's Nero. I think that's a very compelling argument. Now, there are other arguments against that. You're free to research those. But, boy, they really do some, I think, biblical gymnastics to make other things work. It seems to me that the obvious reading of this is five Caesars have fallen. Those five, one is, it's Nero. And the next one's only going to be around for a little while. And that was Galba. Well, moving on. In verse 12, we see 10 kings who received no kingdom as yet. Well, who are these guys? You know, you have to say, you know, you know I'm going, well, wait a minute, because it sounds like the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire had a kingdom. But these guys don't have a kingdom as of yet. I think that what we have here are surrounding provinces, which at some level serve the beast, especially as we read So you've got Rome as a city, Rome as an empire. You've got surrounding provinces that are serving Rome. And they're all doing what? They're all making war with the lamb. But then you have them turn, right? They turn on the the woman and they make her desolate. So what history tells us, and then this is out... This is not in the text, and so it's historical, which makes it not as you know, strong exegetically, and that is that, the Rome, that Rome and the Roman Empire were destroyed by those surrounding Parthian kings and provinces. And so you have Jerusalem destroyed, and then you have Rome destroyed, then you have the Roman Empire destroyed, and it's all God deposing those who've taken rank against Christ and his church. Now, there's one other, one other thing here I want to point out, because if you're reading this and you're studying it, you're like going, wow, but those, they were all doing evil, right? Not only, so, you, so you got Rome as a city, you've got Rome as empire, and then you've got these surrounding cities, and they're all doing evil. And yet, what you're saying, Pastor Paul, is that this is all the work of God to depose the enemies of Christ and his church. Now, here's something you need to know, that if, if you have bad and I want to sound insulting, I want to be charitable, but if you have bad theology, the Bible becomes very difficult to read because you're like going, well, no, they did evil things, so it couldn't have been of God. Could, could it be of God? What we learned, remember we, just a few weeks ago we went through Habakkuk? Remember the story of Habakkuk? Habakkuk saying, Lord, how long, how long before you judge Israel because we're very bad? And God says what? Not long. I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bloodthirsty people. And he goes on and on talking about how powerful and horrible they are. And God's going, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to judge Israel. And then what does Habakkuk say? He's like, wait a minute. He didn't really say it that way. This is my translation. They're more evil than us. And then what does God say? He goes, I know. And then I'm going to judge them for what they do to you. And then Habakkuk does what we all should do, and that is put our hand over our mouth and recognize the sovereignty of God. That God can take a crooked stick and draw a straight line, and if he chooses to break the stick, he breaks it. And if we don't understand that, we're not going to have an easy time understanding the fact that God is using all of these evil nations 
to actually crush each other in their war of the Lamb. The evil harlot, the evil Roman Empire, and the the surrounding evil provinces all make war with the Lamb. Well, verse 14, we see something that should astonish us. I'm sure it astonished the original readers, because you're reading all of this devastation language, right? And then in verse 14, we read this. And the Lamb will overcome them. Now, keep in mind how small the church was at this time. They're not going to overcome them politically. They're not going to certainly overcome them militarily. I mean, they're all just kind of like, are we even going to make it out of the first century? But that lamb, let's beckon back to chapter 1, right? The glorified Christ with eyes like the sun and a sword coming out of his mouth and skin like burnt brass. And I mean, all of a sudden, it's like going, that's who they're really fighting. And the lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords, And the king of kings and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Friends, keep this in mind. It is the nature of ungodly structures, whether they're religious, political, familial, cultural, educational, whatever, to become a house divided. That is the nature of the worldly enterprise. And Jesus was not unclear that a house divided will not stand. Right now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but every letter in the LGBTQ and I and A, and there's a couple more letters I'm keeping track, but they're all at each other's throats right now. You know, because there was a gay parade, but the person who was like the guest of honor at the gay parade was transgender. And so the gay people were kind of going, why? It's a gay parade, not a transgender. So they're at each other's throats. That's a house divided. It's not going to stand. It's not going to last very long. I don't know if you realize this. You know the coexist bumper sticker? There, I mean, if it wasn't sad, it would be laughable that if you look that up, there is a ton of argument and litigation in terms of who actually owns the coexist logo. They're suing each other. And you realize this. I mean, dictators killing their own military, killing their own generals, killing their own staff is almost a proverb, right? You've got these powerful tyrants, and they just look around the room. They don't trust who's in the room. They view them as a threat. So that's the world. And somebody, I was was studying something just recently, and somebody put it this way. I thought it was kind of clever and very true. We are doing battle as Christians with the world. We are doing battle with this enemy. We are doing battle with this beast but the, but the entity with which we are doing battle is unwittingly suicidal. They'll kill, each, they'll kill themselves. And there's only one kingdom that will endure till the end. And the whole point of the revelation, I think, as John is writing this to these seven churches, is are you going to be part of that kingdom that will endure to the end? There is both historical and eternal overcomings that come to those who are called and chosen and faithful. And this is not some new... One of the points I've always tried to make in this is the Revelation is not presenting us with some new kind of Christianity. If we get to the Revelation, as we'll learn today in the Westminster class, 
and we have some entirely different view of Christianity, we've read it amiss. Will Christians suffer? Absolutely. You know, as a post-millennialist, people go, the problem with you, your position is you don't think Christians, there's going to come a point where Christians don't suffer. That is not the position. Here's the position. They will suffer, but their suffering is productive. The blood of the martyrs is what? The seed of the church. We will see, I think, both historically and most certainly eternal fruit as a result of the suffering that Christians are willing to endure for Christ. And that is a promise that it's toward a kingdom that has no end. In the 1640s, this was written about the persevering nature of the church. It's the Westminster Confession 25.5. We read this. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. I think we all need to recognize that. I think we all need to recognize that um, if, we, if Christ walked into this church today and came to our elders meeting today, he would not say everything was perfect. You guys need no instruction. With, like, he'd be like, okay, you know, let me get my legal pad out. You know? So we have to recognize that, every church. But it goes on to say, but some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan, which they take from the revelation, right? If the church is unwilling to repent and they keep going down that road, the lampstand is removed and they are not a church at all. But this is the point I want us to focus on. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. It is the one kingdom that will endure forever. Friends, the call in Revelation is that we ever strive to remain faithful. For the Lamb overcomes, by the way, more than evil structures. He overcomes more than evil nations in history. He overcomes death itself. And his victory becomes our victory when we put our faith in him and persevere in that faith. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would take to heart the words found in this powerful book, that we would recognize, Father, that you have a call in our lives and that Jesus truly is, even this very moment, the King of kings and Lord of lords who works all things after the counsel of his glorious will. And we pray, Father, that in light of this, that we would ever seek to persevere, that we would ever seek to walk in faith, that we would know lying glitter when we see it, And that, Father, we would pursue things that even seem dull and unimaginative if, in fact, they are true and God-glorifying. And we pray these things in his precious name and in his blood. Amen.